I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 3, as is our custom. We will throw up particular verses at various times throughout the message. Uh, but this, this is a, a long story by biblical standards. And when you read Daniel chapter 3 with modern eyes or with a modern perspective, you'll see that it is a very strange custom that was imposed upon the people of the day. The king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, had built a massive statue, and the dimensions are listed in the early verses of the chapter. A massive golden statue was presented, and the people of the land were commanded to worship this statue. Commanded to worship this statue. And the the command to worship had a, a subsequent warning that went with it. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. I mean, that is, that is a harsh, harsh penalty. You know, we, we live in a land that has laws which govern our conduct and our actions. And there are various fines and for serious crimes we can be put in prison. But we have nothing like this. If you don't worship the right way or you don't worship the right thing, they were told that they would be thrown immediately, without a trial apparently, immediately into a blazing furnace. In other words, nonconformity to this single custom which was recently enacted meant capital punishment. And so with such an extreme and harsh threat looming, we're not surprised to read further on in the passage that when the music, when the signal was sounded, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now this custom, this imperative to worship an image made out of gold may sound entirely strange to us here today. But I would suggest to you that the underlying principle in play here is a familiar one. The underlying principle in play here is a familiar one. Our present day culture which is shaped, of course, by popular opinion. Our present-day culture expects us to follow all of its fashions and to obey all of its rules. And inevitably, this presents a challenge for the Christian who desires to conform his or her life to biblical standards. Because the standards we find as Scripture are often at odds with the standards of our present day culture. Accordingly, we must learn how to accompany our culture without accommodating its principles. So Daniel chapter 3 is the account of three Jewish men who remained faithful to God and His commandments at a time when their obedience to God made them vulnerable to being executed by the governing authorities of their day. Now it would be a mistake to regard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as mavericks. 
It would be a mistake to say these guys were just rebels. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they didn't want anyone telling them what to do. They were renegades. They were marching to the beat of their own drum. It would be a mistake to label these three men in this way. These men had become meaningfully integrated into their culture and society. Look at verse 12. It says that these men had been set in charge over the affairs of the province of Babylon. To put it another way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were on the government payroll. They made a living working for the government, working for the king and Nebuchadnezzar. Nevertheless, these men had discerned how to accompany their culture without accommodating all of its principles. These men were willing to serve within their culture as we are today, but they were unwilling to conform to a societal law that would cause them to transgress against the law of God. Because you probably figured out as you heard this passage read that Nebuchadnezzar was requiring something that was a clear violation, a blatant violation of the first commandment and the second commandment given to Moses and to God's people, the, the Israelites. The commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to be faithful to God at a time and in a manner that exposed them to the threat of capital punishment. Now, of course, it was a large population. It might have been difficult for them to enforce who was worshipping and who was not. Maybe when the signal was sounded, people were hiding because they didn't want to be seen as not conforming to the imperative to worship. It could have been possible that they could have eluded detection in their nonconformity. But we're told in the text that astrologers and other manuscripts, it's the Chaldeans, ratted them out. I remember as a kid, that was always the worst. You thought you were circumventing a rule. You thought you were getting away with something and doing what you wanted to do. And then somebody rats you out. Somebody says, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And they get caught. Well, that's what happened. The Chaldeans rat out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they're summoned to the principal's office, as it were. They're summoned to meet with King Nebuchadnezzar. And they're asked the question, is it true what I've heard? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods? Is it true that you do not worship the image of gold that I have set up? And the king cuts himself off without even giving them a chance to answer the question. He basically says, you know what, we can make this right immediately. Why don't you bow before the image of gold right now? Why don't you conform to the law? Why don't you worship the image right now here in my presence? 
And of course, if the men don't, it means certain death. It's a difficult predicament that they're in. The king is watching. The image is supposed to be worshipped. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the king with the threat of a horrific death on the horizon if they don't do what he says. What are God's people to do? What would we be expected to do in such a situation? Well, as we look at this example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I want us to observe three things. I want us to observe three things and hopefully it will help us in the times where we are confronted to make a choice between following God and following the ways of our culture. First, I want us to note the excuses that could have been made. The excuses that could have been made. Second, note the confidence and the determination that these men possessed. And three, let us note the result of their obedience. The result of their obedience. But first, the excuses they could have made. And there's a bunch that if I was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I've got a bunch of excuses that are floating right up to my mind immediately. The first one would be this, hey, we're living in a foreign land. And as any good missionary, we have to adapt to the culture we're in. You know, when we're in Canada, we act Canadian. When we're in the Bahamas, we act Bahamian. And when we're living in Babylon, we live as the Babylonians. Surely that is the prudent course of action. This could have been what they reasoned. They also could have reasoned, well, we hold public office. We're officials over the, the people, and we have a duty to fulfill our public office. When we are in the public's eye, we must fulfill our public duty in spite of our personal beliefs. They could have also reasoned, well, everyone is doing it. My neighbor is doing it. My colleagues are doing it. Even my family members are doing it. Everybody's worshipping the image. Surely it can't be a bad thing if I'm acting just like everyone else. They may have even employed the noble argument that they could do far more good for the God of Israel if they were living than if they were dead. They probably could have reasoned, well, how can we bear testimony to the God of Israel if we're dead? We can only bear testimony to the greatness of the God of Israel if we're alive. So we need to just bow down and get this thing over with so that we can represent God. Now I can think of these excuses quite readily. Because my mind, I admit it, my mind naturally drifts towards rationalization. What do I mean? Does that mean I'm governed by reason? Not exactly. It means when I want to do something, I'm good at figuring out reasons for why that is a good course of action. I'm good at rationalizing my behavior. Is that true of you? As you think of the choices you've made, as you think of the life you lead, is it not true of you that you've rationalized it? You've reasoned it out. I do what I do because of this and because of that. And I don't want to sound unkind with this next statement because let me lead into it by saying it's sometimes true of me. And what's sometimes true of me might also be true of you. 
And that is to say that we cloak our unbiblical actions. We cloak our unbiblical actions in a logic that is tethered to our culture's norms. We justify our unbiblical behavior with a logic that's tethered to cultural norms. But that's not what these men did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to embrace a rationale that would lead them to disobey God. They could have listed a number of excuses, but they didn't. Now let us note the confidence they had, the determination they had in their obedience to God. Nebuchadnezzar's question to them, What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king, The God we serve is able to save us from the furnace, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The confidence of these men is seen in the immediacy of their response. There is no indication that they hesitated or deliberated. I don't know about you, but as I read this passage, my mind's going to the furnace. I'm thinking, how big's this furnace? You know, what was it? Is it cold? How is the fire intensified? I'm thinking through how hot the furnace is. I'm thinking how quickly my death would come about. I'm thinking about how horrific a way to go this would be. But these men neither hesitate nor deliberate. Nebuchadnezzar says, what God is able to save you? And their unflinching response is the God we serve is able to save us. The God we serve is able to save us. And, and note that their confidence and their determination did not pivot on the certainty of being delivered. That is to say, their confidence is rooted in God's ability to save. It's rooted in His character and not necessarily in His willingness to save. The men refuse to presume upon God's will. They concede that God may not save them. They concede that they may in fact die because of their action or non-action. But this is the impressive thing about these men. They would rather die a horrific death than disobey the God they love. What godly men are these that they would rather die a horrific death than disobey the God they love? So now we must look at the results of their obedience to God. And the immediate result wasn't very good. I think sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to do the right thing and God's going to bless me. And we expect uh, the blessing to be immediate. But you can imagine if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you say, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship this image of gold. And the king says, okay, we'll take them away. Throw them in the furnace. 
And if I'm then, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, when are you coming? When, when are you fixing this? Hurry up. But immediately they're bound. And, and the language is that they were bound tightly. It wasn't like this was some haphazardly wrapped rope. They were bound in such a manner that they weren't getting out of this. And they're thrown into a furnace which has already killed the soldiers who walked them over there in the first place. The result of their obedience to God was not immediate deliverance. But it was ultimate deliverance. Ultimately they were delivered. And I love the way Daniel records for us the king's response. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. We need to know the unique character of the deliverance that God provides here. Think of the number of ways God could have fixed this situation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God has control over the human will. He could have simply caused King Nebuchadnezzar to have a change of heart. He could have had King Nebuchadnezzar say, you know what? I'm impressed with you guys. You've served the government well. Your track record's clean. I'm going to let it go this time. Never mind the whole blazing furnace thing. Go on your way. Go on your way. God could have just had Nebuchadnezzar change his mind, but he didn't. Another way deliverance could have come is the Lord could have miraculously extinguished the flames. He could have used his power, the power over all the universe. He could have made the flames and the furnace and the heat and the furnace just disappear. But that's not the way he does it. No, the Lord ordained to save them in the fire rather than from the fire. The Lord ordained to save them in the fire rather than from the fire. If you're at all like me, when things get hot, when the circumstances of your life heat up in an uncomfortable way, my pattern of prayer is say, Lord, show me the exit. Show me the back door. Get me out of here. Things are heating up in a hurry. I need to get out of here. You don't want to even get close to the fire, do you? I don't. I don't think any of us want to get close to the fire. And yet scripture testifies that it's more common for God to save us in the fire rather than from the fire. And the hymn we're going to sing near the end of the service captures this thought. It's a familiar hymn. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. I think it's rather strange to hear the bells. At first I thought it was an ice cream truck, but maybe someone's just receiving a text. I think when we look over Daniel chapter 3, our instinct is to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as heroes. 
I think our instinct is to look at these three men as heroes in the faith that we want to emulate. I know the first, the second, probably the first dozen times I studied this passage, I imagined that the passage was all about these three Jewish men that I needed to be like. And while it's true that their characteristics and their integrity and their faithfulness needs to be an example to us to follow, I wouldn't want you to walk away this morning thinking that these three Jewish men and their example is the main point of the text. Their obedience was huge. They were unflinching in their resolve to obey God. And while we may marvel at the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we must not miss the ultimate hero in the story. And it is God. Daniel chapter 3, first and foremost, is about the greatness of God. Nebuchadnezzar mockingly asks in verse 15, What God will be able to rescue you? From my hand. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I don't know for certain, so I can't say for certain. But I can't help but wonder if the fourth person in the furnace, I wonder if that was an incarnation of God. We know that the primary incarnation of God is in Jesus Christ, His only Son. But there are Old Testament accounts where there are other kinds of incarnation. And I wonder if this is one of them. I wonder if the fourth person in the furnace is the incarnate Son of God. Could it be that God took it upon himself to personally rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That he personally delivered them himself from the furnace? Because our God is like that, isn't he? Our God is like that to do things himself. To do things, to come down in a personal way. As sinful humanity went from bad to worse. And as the furnace of divine judgment heated up. The Son of God came to this earth. And He personally rescued you. And He personally rescued me. All of scripture testifies. That the great God of this universe is a saving God. That might be the primary thing on his resume. You look, he's always saving his people. He's saving Noah from the flood. He's saving Moses from the Egyptians. He's saving three Jewish men from the furnace. He's saving humanity by coming down and personally dying in our place and taking the penalty which belonged to us. Even Nebuchadnezzar figured this out. Even Nebuchadnezzar figured this out. He says in verse 29, no other God can save in this way. It's like he, he concedes, he gives up. He's like, oh, okay, I've seen a lot of things, but there's a fourth guy in this furnace. He looks different than the other three. There's no sign of scorching on their clothes, no smell of smoke. No other God can save like this. 
Nebuchadnezzar is a changed man. He's an evil man whose perspective is changed because he comes in close proximity to the awesomeness and greatness of God. And he says, no other God saves like this. And that's the note I want to leave you with this morning. Why? You're not in a blazing furnace. You're not facing capital punishment. But you might be struggling in some serious way. You might be in a predicament at the moment that is very painful. And I want you to hear what Nebuchadnezzar told us. No other God can save you. No other God can help you. Are you struggling in a relationship? Do you have a strained relationship with your spouse? Do you have a strained relationship with some other member of your family? No other God can save you. Are you struggling to make ends meet? Do you find you have more bills to pay than money in your bank account? Are you overwhelmed by your obligations and your responsibilities? No other God can save you. Are you battling an addiction? Are you tempted to do things that are contrary to the Word of God? No other God can save you. And the good news is that the God who is able to save you wants to save you. And this is the great thing. It would be one thing for me to come and talk to you about a God who can do anything, who might do anything, but to hear that He wants to do something. That God wants to help you. But of course, the God of this universe is not like a magic genie. He's not like a magic genie that we conjure up when we get into trouble. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a relationship with the God of Israel. These men lived their lives in daily devotion to Him. These men defended God's honor before the King of the land. These men were intensely serious about their relationship with God. And it is out of that context that they look to God for rescue and God delivers them. That's what God promises in His Word. If you were to look up Psalm 50 verse 15, you would hear this as a word from the Lord. The Lord says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you. And you will honor me. One of my favorite verses in scripture. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will rescue you and you will honor me. But there has to be that pre-existing relationship. Dear friends, it is my distinct privilege to remind you this morning. That our God, the God we've come to worship, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is my distinct privilege to tell you our God is a saving God. 
He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you from predicaments that challenge your faith. We need to get in close proximity to Him. We need to set our affections upon God. We need to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ above everything else. So that when trials come, when fiery trials come, we will call upon the name of the Lord and He will rescue us in Jesus' name. Amen.